EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. As we enter August and the second month of a new intern's residency career, let's welcome back two of our interns, Dr. Durba and Dr. Folk, to give us some unique perspective and insights in their intern nuggets. Thank you again for joining us on EM Guidewire. This is Sophia Durba, PGY1. And this is Destiny Folk, PGY1. This episode is brought to you by Chest X-Rays. One of the things you don't order for patients with bronchiolitis because bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis. Well, I can tell someone's been on their inpatient pediatric rotation this month. Maybe. This week on EM Guidewire, we are continuing our new intern-specific segment, Intern Nuggets. Thank you for joining us, and congratulations to the new interns on surviving your first several weeks of residency. The beginning of residency is exciting, but also extremely overwhelming. I know we still have so much to learn, but at least we are all more familiar with the logistics of our individual hospital systems. We know how to call consults, put in medication orders, and also admit and discharge patients. Last month, Dr. Folk and I talked about strategies for managing imposter syndrome and some pain medication tips. This week, we will cover sign-out culture and some clinical peds knowledge, including dehydration and bruise. For brewies. However you say it. Let's jump right into this week's content and talk about some tips for a smoother transition between your shifts and sign-out culture. Each hospital and team you work with may have a slightly different expectation and culture of what information you hand off at sign-out and what tasks you should finish before leaving the department versus what you should sign out to the oncoming team. EM Guidewire already has a great comprehensive episode on how to create an effective sign-out, and we will share a few tips from our intern perspective that have been useful for us so far. Check out Transition of Care Signout in the ED for a more comprehensive coverage of this topic. Signout is a dangerous time for patient care because there is a huge risk of medical errors happening due to misinformation or omitted information being lost in the signout from one provider to the next. It's essential to give a succinct but thorough signout. As a new intern, I've found the following four element mental checklist for signout helpful. First, start with a one liner on your patient with a dispo. Next, give a brief background with the patient's story. Then say the things that you have done so far in the workup and end with the things that still need to be done. These four elements are easier for me to recall in the moment and have helped me stay on track, give relevant information in my signouts to the oncoming team, and avoid lengthy tangential stories of how last week the patient was walking the dog and felt some belly pain that kind of felt like this belly pain, but it was also kind of different. And so I got a CT of their abdomen and pelvis, which was normal, but now they're having some right hand pain and nausea that went away when they took ibuprofen. But today they have a headache too, which they think might be because of their allergies, but their vitals were normal except for being hypertensive with systolics in the 200s. And so I talked to neurology about the possibility of... You don't want to take the person you are signing out to on a wild adventure of tangential bits of HPI, objective findings, and workup, only to end your sign-out with. Patient is admitted to general surgery and stable, so nothing for you to do. You also don't want to have a long, unorganized sign-out ending with, so I really don't know what's going on, but hopefully you guys can figure out what's wrong with them, without including any key diagnoses you've ruled out or are still considering. At our institution, we generally state in our one-liners, sign-out pending chest x-ray or admitted to emergency general surgery for appendectomy, as well as if this patient is a watcher or not. 
That way, your colleague has the mindset from the beginning of either following up on and continuing an extensive workup or just needing to know the patient's general story and clinical status to be able to keep an eye on the patient until they get admitted. If you don't know what the diagnosis is, cover important diagnoses you've either considered or excluded and what some dispo possibilities are depending on results of whatever pending workup you're signing out. For example, if a CT you want someone to follow up on is negative, then what? Can they go home? Do they get admitted regardless? One tip I have for the person receiving sign-out is to listen, take notes, and not interrupt while the person signing out is telling you about their patient. Remember being a medical student and working with upper levels who would repeatedly interrupt your presentation with questions you were just about to answer if only they'd let you finish? Well, be kind to your co-interns who are signing out. If they are using the structure we just discussed, they will answer most, if not all, of the questions you have about the patient's workup and disposition. Now, in terms of general sign-out culture, here at Carolina's Medical Center, we had a class discussion on our expectations of each other around shift change. This included things like how early you show up to a shift and how soon you start picking up patients. We discussed which patient documentation we always finish while we are still physically in the hospital. At any institution, it's generally important to finish notes on any patients you're signing out before you leave, or at least writing an HPI in a physical exam so that the new team has something to reference and don't have to start over or piece your thought process together from your ordered workup so far. We agreed on what kinds of follow-ups, workups, or procedures we do sign out to the next team versus which ones we stay to finish before leaving the department. We've also emphasized the fact that we want to try our hardest to get each other out on time. For example, we agreed to stay and finish any procedures like laceration repairs, LPs, as well as sensitive exams like a pelvic or a rectal exam on a patient who needs it before signing out that patient. If I get to my shift and see that the intern signing out to me has an LP and procedural sedation for a forearm fracture to do, I might offer to do at least one of those procedures. If I do offer to do that, I should consider the patient load and if the department is in a good place for me to be gone for a bit at the beginning of my shift to do a procedure. However, if a patient needs a pelvic exam, the outgoing provider has developed a rapport with that patient, and the patient will generally feel more comfortable with a familiar provider performing a sensitive exam. On the flip side, we work in shifts, and you don't need to stay until every lab and imaging finding is back on every patient. It can be so easy to say, oh, this result is almost back, I'll just stay, and then I can discharge them or consult surgery, and I'll finish up another thing with this patient to get them admitted while I'm waiting for that, and then before you know it, you're also ordering a follow-up lab or two for another patient, your four-year-old lack repair patients let wore off, so you have to stay even longer and restart the local anesthesia process, and a nurse comes up and asks you to put it in order, and you're staying hours past your shift. It's okay and expected that you sign out your patients to the next team. When you get to your shift, it is also good form to ask how you can get your colleagues out at the end of their shift and offer help when you see that the department is chaotic and they're too willing to stay well past their shift to tie up never-ending loose ends. All right, that wraps up our practical tips on sign-out culture. Let's end with some quick clinical pearls we've learned in the last few weeks, focusing on the pediatric population in particular. Let's start with a kid that comes into the ED with vomiting and diarrhea and a classic clinical picture of gastroenteritis. You've ruled out all the scary things for this point in time, and I say for now because they could always still have something like appendicitis, and that is why we give good return precautions if the child doesn't follow a predicted gastroenteritis course. But let's say the patient with suspected gastroenteritis still looks kind of sick and you're wondering, are they dehydrated? They look kind of tired, but they're not lethargic and toxic appearing, so I don't know if I need to admit them, but are they safe to go home? I found myself stuck in that in-between of sick and not sick and unsure of how to best approach these kids. I start by looking at the heart rate 
and the child's general appearance. If the patient has a history of fluid losses with diarrhea, plus or minus vomiting, and they're tachycardic, that's the first and most important sign to clue me into dehydration. Besides history of fluid losses and tachycardia, look for dry mucous membranes or skin tinting, or slow cap refill for a patient who is closer to the severe side of the dehydration spectrum. And if they do have tachycardia and dry mucous membranes, let's fix it by getting them pumped full of IV fluid stat. Right, Dr. Erba? Hang on, hang on. Before you go poking every kid with an IV, consider if this patient can rehydrate with oral rehydration therapy. In fact, unless a child has hypotension along with the tachycardia to suggest shock or an altered mental status, your first go-to therapy should generally be oral rehydration therapy first because enteral rehydration with a solution of water, salt, and sugar is just as effective as IV without the painful needle stick. But they're dehydrated. I should probably check a CBC and some electrolytes. Can I just have nurses place an IV and we can simultaneously start IV fluids? Not necessarily. Unless you see a picture of a kid with severe dehydration, that is, weight loss from water losses of 10% or more from a recent weight, tachycardia, slow cap refill, and skin tenting, or if the patient is altered, in which case you might worry about dehydration with hypernatremia, you don't need to draw labs. The caveat to this is the blood glucose. The point-of-care blood glucose can be obtained without IV access and is the one lab that is essential to choosing the best IV fluids. A normal versus low glucose will be the deciding factor in whether you choose an isotonic fluid like normal saline or LR or an isotonic fluid solution with sugar like D5 normal saline. A hypoglycemic patient will continue to look puny and sad if you only rehydrate them and don't replete their glucose. If the patient doesn't need an IV, oral rehydration solution, or ORT, will have sugar in it along with the salt regardless. The IV consideration does make sense, since dehydration from diarrheal illness is the leading cause of death in children worldwide, and not every setting in which we deliver medical care will allow us to place an IV. ORT is the first-line treatment across all care settings for mild and moderate dehydration and also in severe dehydration if the patient can take anything by mouth. This means that you might even try an NG tube to accomplish enteral rehydration with ORT, which sounds invasive, but parents might actually appreciate this option more than they'll appreciate you poking their kid with an IV and creating a traumatic experience for the patient in a medical setting, or worse, a complication like IV infiltration or infection. The oral rehydration solution itself, Pedialyte being one example of an ORT, is especially important to use in your choice of rehydration fluid because fluids like juice or sports drinks are high in sugar with little to no salt and might cause the patient to lose even more water and salt. So what if I want to give a kid ORT, and I think they could maybe drink something if they really tried, but mom or dad says they just won't do it. How do I get my patient to tolerate ORT? I'm going to quote Dr. Fox on this one. Stern love and Zofran. As a quick reminder, EM Guidewire doesn't endorse any particular brand of anti-nausea medication, but it just doesn't quite have the same ring with Ondansetron. That's great advice, Dr. Derba. ORT is life-saving and vital, and you should always consider this therapy for the classic dehydrated pediatric patient with gastroenteritis or diarrhea. Let's move on to our last topic and talk briefly about brews. Not the beer brew, but the B-R-U-E, which stands for Brief Resolved Unexplained Event. A brew is an event that happens in infants under one year old. The event is sudden, brief, unexplained, and completely resolved by the time the patient presents to the ED. One or more of the following must be present to classify the event as a brew. Color change, meaning cyanosis or pallor, irregularity in breathing, an altered level of responsiveness, or a change in tone, whether that be flaccid or tense. 
Brews are either classified as low risk or high risk by the AAP guidelines. Most will be classified as high risk due to not meeting all of the lowest criteria. The low risk criteria include age greater than 60 days, the infant must have been born at over 32 weeks gestation, and this might be the first and only brew. Additionally, the event must have lasted for less than 60 seconds, there must be a reassuring physical exam, and no CPR performed by a trained medical professional. That does not include parental CPR support unless, of course, the parents are medically trained. If the patient's event can be classified as a low-risk brew, no workup is indicated aside from a thorough history and physical. Some providers will get an EKG, but no labs or radiographs are needed. You should place the patient on the monitor and observe them for one to four hours. After an observation period without any concerning findings, you can safely discharge the patient home. Patients with a low-risk brew do not need to be admitted. If a patient does not meet the low-risk criteria, they are by default high-risk. High-risk patients will be admitted and should be placed on the monitor. The differential for a brew includes craniofacial and ENT abnormalities like laryngomalacia, GERD, cardiovascular abnormalities, seizures, non-accidental trauma, toxins, infection, and inborn errors of metabolism. Given this broad differential, the workup for this group of patients is crafted based on the history and physical exam you obtain at the bedside. Some of these patients will just need observation, for example, if you suspect a diagnosis of GERD. If non-accidental trauma is suspected, you should proceed with head imaging. In the neonate, an LP and thorough lab workup will be indicated. That's right, Dr. Derba. There is no standard workup for a high-risk brew. You will have to utilize your history and physical to create the appropriate plan for this high-risk group of patients. But remember, everyone in this high-risk group will get admitted and should be placed on the monitor. There are a few normal neonatal findings that can be mistaken for a brew. The first is vasomotor instability. This can present in the first few days to weeks of life. The infant may have one or more extremities that turn blue due to vasomotor instability and then return pink after a period of time. Periodic breathing is another normal finding but can be really scary for parents. Periodic breathing is breathing fast for a period of time and then becoming apneic for up to 20 seconds. Lastly, the venous plexus around baby's mouths can cause them to turn blue around their lips, but if they are satting at 100% on room air and do not have any other red flags, this is considered normal. That wraps up our second episode of Intern Nuggets. Remember, ORT is your first-line therapy for dehydration in dehydrated pediatric patients and utilize the AAP brew risk stratifying criteria to determine your patient's disposition. Thanks for listening to us here at the J. Lee Garvey Studio at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be back for some more intern nuggets soon. Thank you, Drs. Derber and Falk, for bringing us that intern nugget. I certainly appreciate a little extra pediatric morsel in there as well. All of us at EM Guidewire would also like to extend a very hearty thank you to all of our listeners out there. Please remember that you can always access all of the previous published content from EM Guidewire on our website, www.emguidewire.com, as well as access some other great educational information such as the CMC Imaging Mastery Project. So please enjoy all of that content. Let us know if there's anything else we can provide. Stay safe out there and be awesome. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems you out. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Aside from a thurry. A thurry. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs>
What? What did I say? <laughs> you said a blue. <laughs> oh my god, I said a for a blue. That you got the cute. blues. <laughs> I said brew that second time, right? I didn't say blue. Okay. Blue's my favorite color, so you know I just like <laughs> to say that word, maybe. <laughs> blue is also my favorite color. You and C blue. Um you and C blue. Oh my god. Thanks for specifying. Shout out to all UNC <laughs> students. You are the best. Oh, that was uh, so okay. cute. 